1: Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, Lord. Thank you for this church. Thank you for bringing us here, Father. We give all the glory, honor, and praise to you this morning. Lord, we ask that you would bless this service, this congregation, and our time together, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, everyone loves justice. Everyone loves when the bad guy gets what he deserves. We all love a story where that, that evil villain finally gets what's coming to him. There's some instinct inside of us that's hardwired this way. Something that is satisfied when we hear a story like this. Something inside of us just loves when evil people lose. It just, it feels right. There's a real example of this, a real life example. This is a true story. Um, now pay attention to the way that you feel at the end of the story. So stories about a guy named Alan Ralski, who was an entrepreneur in the year 2003. If you remember then, that was like the years of AOL and you know, Yahoo and MySpace, and all the people were kind of making money for the first time on the internet. And so email had kind of finally reached the point where everyone had an email. And so Ralski, this entrepreneur, comes up with this idea to get companies to pay him to send spam emails, spam advertisements and it works great. And eventually he figures out how he can be sent, he's sending millions of emails every day, just spam, garbage emails. Everyone knows about that. And he eventually turns to doing illegal work where he's defrauding people through these emails, kind of in a complicated way, but he's basically using false advertising to trick people into losing money, all through the spam email. And he's making millions of dollars, I mean just getting filthy rich off this scheme. And here's what happens. Eventually, a local newspaper finds out what he's doing and how rich he is and how nice his house is and things like that. And they publish an article about his lifestyle and how much money he's making and how he's making it. And so what happens is some of the people who have been scammed by him find this article and, by this, find out where he lives, which is already a good sign. And so what they do is they go through every source they can possibly find and sign up his address for every piece of physical junk mail that they can find. And a bunch of people participate in this. And here's what happens. He starts getting junk mail in the mail. Eventually, at one point, he's getting over 100 pounds of junk mail every day, just pouring into his house, and it just, like, ruins him. And so the king of spam finally gets spammed. And that's justice. We kind of feel like, yes, he got what he deserved. He kind of got his comeuppance, as we say. But if that would have happened to anyone else, we would say, well, that's, that's not right. But for him, he got what he deserved. And something inside of us says, yeah, that's good. We love when the bad guys lose. And we know this is true also because it's in all of the, the movies, all the stories we create, we read. That's how they all are. We love, like, in The Patriot, when Mel Gibson finally kills that guy who murdered his family. Yes, this is right. There's that scene, the famous scene in Gladiator, where he rips off his mask, and, you know, he says, uh, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Something inside of us says, yes, he needs to have his vengeance. He needs to set this right. And when he finally kills the evil emperor, it's like, oh, justice has been served. And something inside of us knows that that is right. We all cheer. We all love it because we're hardwired to feel this way. Something inside of us craves justice. Everyone across the board. We crave justice and peace finally achieved. We crave that bad guy finally getting defeated and destroyed, even if it means violence sometimes. And we feel this often because in our world, Injustice is rampant. In fact, bad guys get off all the time with no punishment whatsoever. Think of all the people who have done evil things and gotten away with it, whether it's on like a technicality in the law or just not getting caught. Men abandon their wives all the time without consequence. Wives abandon their husbands all the time without consequence. Sexual abuse leaves women infertile. Hit and run drivers kill and maim and often escape without any punishment. Corruption in corporations evaporates people's life savings. Children are born into caste systems in India, which they will never escape. People, even in America, people are kidnapped daily and forced into sexual slavery. Just this week, a 12-year-old girl hung herself and live-streamed it to the whole world because a close family member sexually abused her so severely. And so with a resounding voice, all of us cries out, where is the justice for these things? We want to know, will the bad guys ever get what they deserve? And some bad guys do. Here's one example. Have you guys ever seen a, a crime where they give them like a ridiculous life sentence? Like, this one guy, the guy in, in American history who got the longest life sentence, is he got 30,000 years in prison. Um, because and, and the crime was so terrible that I won't even say what it was. Um, but most recently, the guy who shot up the theater in Aurora, Colorado, James Holmes, He was sentenced to, check this out, 12 life sentences and an additional 3,318 years in prison. And these things are rampant. One guy in Spain, the guy who holds the record for getting the most years in prison, he got over 300,000 years in prison, and he was a mailman, and he failed to deliver over 42,000 packages. And so they sentenced him to 300,000 years in prison. So Dave, better watch out. (laughs) But, But they said this was so serious that they had to make a point right? And my question is, why do we do this? Why, what do we think we're gaining by giving someone 3,000 years in prison? They're obviously not going to serve them. But the point is, is that we know somehow that them just sitting in prison until they die around, you know, 70 or 80, it, it, it doesn't satisfy the sense of justice that we have. It doesn't repay anyone. It doesn't fix anything that they did. I mean, James Holmes, that guy, I think he killed 12 people. That doesn't fix the problem. Justice is served, in a sense, but not satisfied. It's not set right. And so that's why you see these ridiculous sentences. We're trying to emphasize that, look, we know we can't do enough to set it right, but yet we try. Justice is served, but not satisfied. Even the death penalty doesn't fully satisfy justice. It just doesn't, it doesn't, something inside of us says it's not enough. Justice is served, but not satisfied. We want more. We yearn for justice to come and to finally be all things to be set right. And I think this is also why people get so crazy about politics and so fanatical. This is why people put all their hopes into political candidates because they mistakenly think that this, this yearning for justice, for peace, for things to finally be set right, they think that this can be fulfilled by some sort of political party or political person. But it can't. It doesn't matter who it is, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Democrat, Republican, or, or whatever. They can't fix all of our eternal problems. And we see that people put their hopes in them, and this causes problems. But we're, we're hardwired to feel this way. And we do all these things in pursuit of peace, in pursuit of justice, in pursuit of hoping that these people will finally fix everything. They won't. We want someone to fight for us. We want someone who will fix these problems problems but why that's my question did God hardwire us this way why is this our natural bent and will this longing for justice and peace ever be satisfied will our longing for everything to be set right ever be satisfied will our longing for the bad guys to finally get what they deserve ever be satisfied will justice ever finally and officially be established on the earth And the answer is a resounding yes. The scriptures answer this question for us with yes, capital letters all the way. Yes, God has hardwired us this way. Yes, that longing that you have deep down inside for justice and peace will one day be satisfied. Yes, it will one day be fulfilled. Yes, our longing for everything to one day be set right will be satisfied. Yes, the bad guys of this world will one day finally get what's coming to them. But, of course, it doesn't matter if I just say this. Let me show you in scriptures. And we're going to look this morning. What we're going to see is we're going to see something about God, characteristic of God, that tells us that the answer is yes. Some character quality is going to give us the assurance that he is going to make things right. And then we're going to look at how he's going to bring this justice. So we'll look at a specific character quality uh, that's revealed in the Old Testament. And then after that, we're going to see a portion of scripture. That gives us a preview to how God is going to answer all of our longings for justice finally and eternally. So with that, would you please turn with me to Exodus 15? What we're going to see in Exodus 15 is simple. God is a warrior who fights. He's a man of war, the text says. Yahweh is a soldier who goes to war. In other words, friends, God is a God who fights. So in Exodus 15, let me set the context a little bit before we look at the verse. In Exodus 15, the verse we're going to look at is in something called the Song of Moses and Miriam. Now here's the setting. It's a familiar one, but let me describe it to you. Because the setting of this song is extremely important to understand why Moses and Miriam sing what they sing. The Israelites have just escaped Egypt. God has miraculously delivered them from slavery and now has led them out into the desert by a pillar of cloud day and by a pillar of fire at night and the Israelites are running and as they're running Pharaoh finally changes his mind and so he sends out his army in pursuit of the Israelites. Now Pharaoh's army had chariots and horses the Israelites are on foot obviously this is a problem and so the Israelites are running they're running they can see the dust behind them of the army coming to get them and they run into a huge roadblock the Red Sea And so what happens is the Israelite people are looking back, and they see Pharaoh's army behind them. They see the Red Sea in front of them, and they start to get angry and scared. And they basically start complaining to Moses, saying, thanks a lot, Moses. Um, Now we're all going to die. We would have been better off as slaves back in Egypt. And they start to lose their faith in God. They think God has failed them. Look where we are now. This is worse than where we were before. But in Exodus 14, Moses shouts out, do not be afraid. Stand firm and watch the deliverance of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And so Moses stretches out his hands in that famous scene and the Lord splits the sea in two. And the Israelites cross the Red Sea between the parted waters, walls of water on each side as they ran and they come through on dry land. It's amazing. But Pharaoh's army... Desperate for revenge, drives right into the sea. They come after them, but as soon as the Israelites are safely across, God brings down the walls of water on Pharaoh's army, throwing them into confusion and destroying and killing every last one of them. None of them survive. And so out of this, the Israelites standing on the other side of the Red Sea, watching the destruction of Pharaoh's army, Moses and Miriam lift up a song of praise to God. And in this song, they sing about many things. It's a beautiful song. But look specifically at Exodus 15 verse three. That's what we're going to focus on. And here's what they say. We're going to see that God is a warrior, He's one who fights. Moses writes this in Exodus 15:3. He says, "The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name." It's a really simple and straightforward verse. Moses tells it very plainly, Yahweh is a man of war. I think the NIV puts it like this, Yahweh is a warrior. And the characteristic I want you to grab on today is that specifically. God is a warrior. He's a man of war. He's he's a soldier. He fights. He kills. He destroys armies. He can be violent. The Hebrew text is really specific about the destruction of Pharaoh's army, that it was God who destroyed them, that no one survived. Uh, It's very clear that when God fights, no one survives on the other side, unless he expressly wants them to. And we see that our God is a warrior who fights. He's a man of war. And at first, your reaction might be a little bit like, that sounds so primitive, so medieval. Maybe it's just this text. Maybe it's just a metaphor. But we know it's not, because it's not just this text. The scriptures are filled with this theme, and we see in this text specifically that it doesn't say that God is like a warrior or that he has warrior qualities. It's very straightforward, God is a warrior. He is a man of war. But second, this text is explicit that it was Yahweh himself who threw the seas on the Pharaoh's army and intentionally killed them. He did it on purpose. It wasn't a natural disaster. It wasn't no, it wasn't an accident or a coincidence. And thirdly, this type of warrior language is used throughout the scriptures to describe God. He is called the Lord of Hosts over 261 times in the Old Testament. And this title, the Lord of Hosts in Hebrew, it's Lord Sabaoth. Um, you might have heard that before. Is literally translated Yahweh or God of the armies. And so we see that he's the leader of armies. And this theme continues to be filled out in scripture. Think about that time when Joshua, in Joshua chapter 5, when he's walking outside the city of Jericho, right before the battle, and he meets a mysterious soldier, one this, this terrifying guy who's just standing there with his sword drawn, and he doesn't know who he is, and so he basically says, um, excuse me, which side are you on? Are you fighting for us or for the other guys? And the warrior says, no, uh, but I am the commander of the Lord's armies. And Joshua falls down and worships. And so we see that, the, that God has armies commander of armies. He fights. Or what about the time when Elisha, the prophet, is with his servant. And the armies of Syria have surrounded them. And Elisha is completely calm, cool, and collected. And his servant is freaking out. And he's terrified. And he's like, uh, Elisha, we're surrounded. They want to kill us. This is not good. We got to go. And Elisha is not worried. And Elisha finally gets annoyed enough with his servant that he prays to the Lord. Lord, would you open the eyes of my servant and the Lord opens the eyes of his servant to see what Elisha knew was there already. The servant looks on the hills around him and see the hills filled with the armies of God dressed in battle and ready for war. And he sees, like Elijah saw, I'm not, he's not afraid anymore because he knew that the Lord is a warrior who fights. He's a man of war, who makes war. Our God is a warrior who fights. But the question then naturally comes... Well, what does he fight for? Does he fight for himself? Does he fight for some sort of cause? And that brings us to our second point this morning, that our God is a warrior who fights for his people and for his glory. He doesn't just simply fight for his own pleasure or just for the fun of it. He doesn't just fight capriciously or aimlessly. He doesn't just love violence and so he fights. He doesn't just fight because he's angry or because he just wants to fight just to get his jollies. He doesn't do any of that. He fights for us, for his people, and for his glory. And you see, his glory is revealed in his deliverance of his people. And this is clearly seen in the Exodus, which we looked at before. God destroyed the armies of Pharaoh. But why? To deliver his people for the glory of his name. And this isn't the only instance in Scripture we see where God fights for his people to deliver them from death and destruction, Every time in scripture we see violent action by the hand of the Lord is to save his people. In the early chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel and they're right on the edge. So they've they've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. They're right on the edge of the promised land. They're about to go in. And if you'll remember what happened, they send spies to spy out the land and they basically come back and say, "Okay, so the promised land is filled with armies and terrifying people. Um, and they're terrified. Um, and so because of their lack of faithlessness, they don't, that generation doesn't get to go into the, the promised land. But they're standing on the edge. And at this point, they're scared. Their faith is wavering again. And so Moses begins to recount all of the ways that God has been faithful to them so far in their journeys. And he begins to tell them, don't you remember when God gave us victory over Og of Bashan, the king, the king of Bashan, defeated him? He's dead or Sahon the king of Heshbon he's defeated he's dead because God fights for us and so Moses looks at Joshua who will lead the armies into the promised land and he says this to Joshua in Deuteronomy 3:21 and 22 he says to Joshua he says Joshua your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings the ones that they had just defeated so will the Lord "...due to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you." He says, Joshua, don't be afraid. God fights for you. In other words, Joshua, people of Israel, you have no reason to fear or be timid, because God himself, the Almighty God, Lord Sabaoth, Lord of the armies himself, goes before you. He fights for you. And this isn't the only time. This happens time and time again with the people of Israel. Think of the story of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, who comes to Jerusalem leading an army of 185,000 men. Now that is a massive army by any standards. And his purpose is to lay siege to Jerusalem and destroy it once and for all. He is sure of victory. He will destroy Jerusalem. He's positive. He's destroyed so many other kingdoms. He's ready to destroy Jerusalem and he's so sure of victory in fact that he begins to mock the israelites and mock god he sends multiple messages to the israelite king hezekiah that basically say your god is nothing look at all the other gods and cities that have fallen before me and my great army and he basically says you think your puny god's going to save you you're wrong well let's look at his message turn to second kings 18:28 second kings 18:28 we're going to look at the messenger he sends To the people of Judah and Jerusalem, and what he says, how he mocks God, and then we're going to see what happens to him. So he says this. Then Rabshakeh, that's the messenger he sent, stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. So in Hebrew, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king: Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying. The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of you his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. In other words, I'll make you rich, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honeys, that you may live and not die." And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Saravaim and Hena and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? the arrogance, the mockery, the pride. And yet Hezekiah, maybe rightfully so, in a, in a worldly sense, is terrified. But Isaiah the prophet tells Hezekiah, no, you go to the temple and you pray. Hezekiah goes and prays. And look down, skip down to chapter 19, verse 35. Here's what it says. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies, 185,000 soldiers dead in one fell swoop of the angel of the Lord. One night, it is clear that our God is a warrior who fights for his people. He destroys armies for his people. He destroys those who mock him. He goes to battle to deliver his people. He goes to battle to save his people. Our God is a warrior who fights for his glory and for his people. Brothers and sisters, he fights for us. Take heart, take refuge in him. Trust in him. But wait, you might say, okay, okay, that's the Old Testament. Jesus isn't like that. Jesus isn't a warrior. He taught peace. What about Jesus? How does he fit into this picture? Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild. What about the New Testament? This just doesn't seem to fit. What about all that stuff about justice and peace? Well, this brings us to our third and final point this morning. Our God is a warrior who fights for us and who will one day violently destroy all evil. God will violently destroy all evil. Our God is fighting for us and one day he will set all things right. Everything will be made right. Jesus is at work in the world right now, and anyone who sets their face against him will be destroyed in the end. Justice will be satisfied. To see this, turn with me to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Go ahead and flip there right at the end of your Bible, almost the last chapter, a couple chapters from the end. Now, we have a saying, and this is where I derive the sermon title. We have a saying, violence is never the answer. But the truth is, if you're Jesus, sometimes it is. In this text, we're going to see the ultimate and final coming of Christ Jesus. And you're going to notice that the next time he comes to earth, it's going to look a lot different than the first time. Jesus, our Savior King, has had enough of evil and will destroy it forever when he comes. And when he comes, he's bringing an army. And when he comes to return for us, his people, he's leading a holy army with a drawn sword. Why? Because he will fight for his people. Look at Revelation 19. This is John's vision. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness, this is Jesus, he judges and makes war. he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe, on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army, against his people. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him, Jesus, who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. See, Jesus will return at the head of a heavenly army. He rides a battle horse and carries a sword. He will judge with justice and righteousness and make war on those who oppose him. He will unleash the wrath of God upon anyone and everyone who opposes God. He will destroy all evil and the devil and death, finally, ultimately, for all eternity. No more evil, no more sin, no more death, no more devil. Justice satisfied once and for all. Everything will be set right on that day. All evil will be destroyed. Isn't that amazing? Peace will be established by the very sword and judgment of Jesus Christ, our savior, everlasting, eternal peace, perfect, holy justice will be administered to all the world. All things will be perfect and right. When Jesus comes back for us, his people, he fights for us and he will violently destroy everything that plagues us, that haunts us, that grieves us. And so Brothers and sisters, take these truths to heart this morning. This world is chaotic. There is death and destruction and evil everywhere. These things have touched each one of our lives. But in the midst of the chaos and the grief of this life, I want to assure you of this very thing. Our God is a warrior who fights for us and who will one day violently destroy all evil. Everything that pains you, everything that grieves you, will one day be done away with. This means that, that we can trust in him to establish ultimate justice and peace one day. It doesn't mean we don't do anything, but it means that we hope in him for that final satisfaction, final justice. We must trust him to fight. Let us take refuge in our Savior King. And so this this truth plays into the ways that we see the world around us. Meditate on this fact that God is a warrior when you think of things, when you think of that, that article you read where, or maybe someone in your family, a drunk driver, swerves and crashes and kills that young teenage girl. And yet he walks out without a scratch. Look to Christ. Look to that final day. Look for that justice and that peace. Look to Christ. Because of that, we can forgive these types of things and give the gospel and call people to faith. Or when you read the, the newspaper and you struggle with the violence that is going on in the world, Children in Syria murdered in the hundreds. ISIS murdering Christians and Muslims all over the world. Mass shootings nearly every week in America, it seems like. Over 3,000 babies murdered every day in America alone. Russia shelling towns in Ukraine. Bands of soldiers raping and pillaging across Africa. Don't look to a politician for an answer. For final justice, look to Christ. Look to the rider on the white horse whose name is faithful and true, the rider who judges and makes war. There is our answer. There is final justice, final satisfaction. Or when you're struggling with apathy in evangelism and sharing your faith, when you're discouraged or wondering what the point is, remember that Jesus is coming. He will violently defeat all who are opposed to him. And so we proclaim the gospel with urgency, with love in our hearts to all those who don't know him. And brother and sister, we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and look to him, we hope in him, we trust in him, because he is our God, he fights for us, and he will destroy evil. Perfect justice will be established, peace will be eternal, and finally, everything will be made right forever. Evil is temporary, our God is eternal. And one day, all things will be made new, and we will dwell with him forever. And this is why we feel that sense of injustice deep down. It's why injustice so deeply disturbs us. It's why we give criminals ridiculously long sentences. It's why, as humans, we continue to create stories about a a Redeemer who, for love, fights, and is victorious. It's why our stories end with happily ever after. These are all pointing to the story, the story of a God who fights for his people and for his glory, and who will one day violently destroy all evil and set all things right. But think about what this means for us. This instantly puts us into a decision. Which side of God's justice will you be on? Are you one of his, or are you one who will be destroyed? In other words, are you going to be standing in front of his sword or behind his shield? The scriptures make it very clear. Only those who trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and submit to him as king are his people. All others are enemies of God. And that is the good news. Because you see, the truth is the scriptures tell us that all of humanity at one time were enemies of God. And yet he sent his son for love to us. First, taking on human flesh and going to the cross to live the life that we couldn't live. And to go to the cross in our place, becoming sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is the good news. Mercy is extended today. The grace of God is offered freely. And to all enemies of God who are rejecting him, justice has been postponed. You have time to repent and turn to Christ. But the truth is, you are in harm's way. And it may sound harsh, but like the book of Ezekiel says, God tells the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel, if you don't tell the people the truth, if you don't tell them that they're in harm's way, blood is on your hands. And so Ezekiel says, I proclaim the truth. I don't want their blood on my hands. And that is the truth, that grace is offered freely to you today, but you are in harm's way if you are not one of Christ's. Romans says that the wrath of God is on your head. That's not a good place to be. But God has mercifully given his son in your behalf if you will place your trust in him. The offer is free. Salvation is yours for the taking. Full pardon, full salvation, full forgiveness, full adoption is offered for those who will trust in Christ. Who will bow the knee to Christ. So I would beg you today, if your trust is not in Christ, place it in him today. Cry out to him for mercy. You will become one of God's true children, forever safe in his arms. Forever safe behind his shield rather than in front of his sword. Now is the time. Don't wait any longer. Come to your king. There are so many people here who would want to talk to you if that's where you're at today. But today, if if you're a Christ follower and you hear this message, friends, the judgment of God is good news for us. We you might have seen in Psalm 7, David says, God, when are you gonna judge? There's so much injustice. And that's the cry we see in Revelation as well. The martyrs who have been killed for the faith are crying out to God at his judgment throne saying, God, how long are you going to wait? How long are you going to wait before you satisfy justice? How long are you going to go before you set everything right? And so as Christians, as his people, we can hope in that coming day. Because everything will be made right and we will dwell with him forever in paradise. That day is coming, brothers and sisters. Look for it. Let us look for it and be hopeful. And let us look for it and be active in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ until them. That is our mission. That is our mission as a church and as individuals. So let us continue to trust in our Lord who fights for his glory and for his people and who will one day violently destroy all evil. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Let's take refuge in him this morning let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you humbled. We come before you trusting in who you are, God. Lord, I pray this morning that for all here, you would cause us to take refuge in you. You would open our eyes, that we would see you as a great warrior king, Lord, who fights for us, that we would take comfort in that. Lord, that we would We would rest in who you are. We would rest in your strength, in your justice. Father, we pray and we look forward to the day when you will return and set all things right and all things will be made new. Father, we worship you. We worship you for who you are, for what you've done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for salvation this morning. That at one time... The wrath of God was on our heads, as Ephesians says. But now, by grace, we have been saved. Father, we praise you infinitely for that. Thank you. And Lord, I pray for any here who do not know you. Lord, would you open their eyes this morning? Would you pour out your mercy on them? Would your spirit just open their hearts to see you for who you truly are, Lord? Will they come running to you? Lord, we love you so much, and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at faith at You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.